0: It's 1983, and a young Black musician, Daryl Davis, is playing at a smoky, packed bar in Maryland.
1: Country music had made a resurgence in our country, so a lot of places changed their format from R&B and Top 40 to country. I'm a full-time musician at that point, so I wanted to work full-time, so I joined a country band.
0: That band played a lot of venues that year, but this one really stood out to Daryl.
1: I was the only Black guy in the band, and uh, we played an all-white establishment. There were no signs saying all-white, but it was well-known that uh, blacks were not welcome in this establishment.
0: After they finished their set, a man approached Daryl, telling him how much he loved his piano playing.
1: And then he remarked that this was the first time he'd ever heard a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. Well, I was rather shocked because this guy was at least a decade and a half older than me and he did not know the black origin of Jerry Lee Lewis's piano playing. I said, look, man, I know Jerry Lee Lewis. He's a good friend of mine. He's told me himself who his influences were.
0: The man wasn't convinced, but he still wanted to buy Daryl a drink.
1: I don't drink alcohol, but I went back to his table, sat down and had a cranberry juice with him. Well, he clinked my glass with his glass. And then he said, This was the first time he'd ever sat down with a black man and had a drink.
0: And then the man told Daryl something he never expected to hear in his lifetime.
1: Turns out he was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And so now I'm wondering, why am I sitting at this table with a Klansman? But he was very friendly, very curious about me. He had literally walked across this bar, to meet me, because of something we had in common, music.
0: Despite Daryl's trepidation, he continued to chat with the man, not just at the table, but for days, weeks, and months. We became friends. And that friendship reminded Daryl of a question that had nagged him for years.
1: It dawned on me a few years later, Daryl, you blew it. You know, the answer to your question that's been plaguing you since the age of 10, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? It fell right into your lap. Who better to ask that question of than someone who would go so far as to join an organization with over a hundred year history of hating people? So that's how my journey began with the Klan.
0: Daryl's friendship led that man to question his own beliefs and soon thereafter to leave the KKK. Daryl didn't stop there. Over the last 40 years, he has befriended dozens of Klansmen, leading approximately 200 members to also see the error of their ways and to leave the Klan. Daryl's journey started as a musician, playing with luminaries like Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Muddy Waters. And then, through the power of music, has led him to become a race activist, a speaker, an entrepreneur, and now a consultant with the United States Army. I'm Carrie Varro and we talk to Daryl, along with Army Chief of Chaplains, Major General Thomas Soljum, on today's episode of Army Matters.
2: We're, we're uplifting each other. And I, I am prepared to sing, so Dan, I hope you're ready.
3: I'm ready. Okay. Hello everyone, and welcome to Army Matters. I am the 15th Sergeant of the United States Army, Dan Daly, retired, and joining me today is my co-host. Yeah, hey Dan,
2: I'm Lieutenant General Leslie C. Smith, the 66th Inspector General of the Army, U.S. Army, retired. I'm so glad to be on the net with you
3: again, man. And less today we have an incredible group of gentlemen that we're going to talk about today. But before we get into that, one of them, he's an incredible musician. Dan, do you like music? I like it all, to be honest with you. I do. I I actually don't have a certain type, you know, whatever's got a good beat to it. I mean, I listen to everything from country to rock to pop to rap to alternative. It just got to have a good beat for me. You know, like the boom, boom. Yeah, I agree. I like all types.
2: Yeah. I think as a kid growing up in the 60s, and we were talking about this before we came on The Net, guys. The 60s music and the 70s music was a big deal for me. Marvin Gaye was a big deal. Yeah. The Temptations were a big deal. Ooh, you're bringing yeah. it back. Yeah, i tell you what. Like 8-tracks and slacks. 8-tracks right? and slacks. I mean, Which a lot of our <laughs> listeners don't know about 8-tracks. We got to right. find one of those, you know? We should, we yeah. should. Now, what type of slacks are you talking about? You're talking about bell-bottoms, right? Oh, yeah, the slacks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Did you have bell-bottoms? I did, but I didn't have the big heels. Did, I, did you have
3: the big heels? No, no, I couldn't afford nothing like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I could see you with some bell bottoms on there. though. Yeah. I think they're coming back. They are. Yeah, I tell you what, why don't we
2: do it together at the office one day? We can. Yeah.
3: So I'm going to go ahead and introduce our guests there. Okay, great. They're two very, very inspiring people. One of them, Daryl Davis. He's an incredible musician, a speaker, an anti-racism. And religious extremist activist the other is an equally fascinating man with his own inspiring story that's major general thomas soldier the army chief of chaplains who we also worked with during our time in the pentagon right les yeah gentlemen welcome to the show thank you for the
4: invitation to partner today together
3: i'm looking forward to it
1: thank you very much for having me it's a true pleasure my father was u.s army I was never in the Army, but I'm glad to help out and support the U.S. Army.
3: Chaplain, I'd like to start with you. Today, we're going to have conversations about opening up people's minds. Last year, you were on our show, and you gave details about your personal life that I didn't know, and I know our listeners didn't know about. But it really opened me up to who you are. Can you share that with us again? Yeah, my personal story? Yes, please.
4: Yeah, so I I came from a... A broken home, a troubled youth, a drug addiction, a lot of risk-taking uh, and harmful behaviors. And I, I joined the Army, entered the service in 1974, running away from, running to something. And unfortunately, the Army of that era, as we we're standing up a volunteer force, Um, I found myself stationed in Germany with a serious drug problem, an addiction, heroin,
1: Mm.
4: and uh, in an environment where there was little care or concern. And I encountered a Sergeant First Class Doc McElroy who was our medic, African American, sharecropper's son from Kentucky. And in that environment, for a black soldier to care about a white soldier was unusual or vice versa. Mm -hmm. Um, very racially divided army. Doc's embrace of me came through a simple question when he saw how upside down I was, a two-time drug overdose. So I'm a failure at completing suicide, thankfully. I got a second chance, and Doc asked a transformational question of me. He said, is your life worth living this way? And that cut to the heart. Doc uh, was a person of faith, and through our relationship, um, it was transformational and changing my life, and he in, introduced me to the chaplain. Uh, we didn't have one in the unit, and so the short of it is, I'm sitting here today through that relationship because of a man who reached across and embraced me as a person.
2: You know, chaplain soldier is it, so powerful to hear that conversation that we just talked about that changed your life, and now you're the chief of chaplains, and you're assisting in the development and execution of this program about holistic health and fitness for the entire army. Can you tell us about it and how that program relates to conversations that we have to have between
4: people of different backgrounds and races? So focused spiritual readiness, five pillars of holistic health and fitness is a physical, the mental, the spiritual, sleep, rest, diet and nutrition. It's essentially who we are as people. The Chaplain Corps has come alongside in helping the holistic health and fitness efforts with the spiritual dimension by bringing evidence-based science into our Army's people. The evidence-based science uh, says that uh, uh, we're all born spiritual. 30% is innate and 70% is socialized or environmental. We work together. Uh, to promote spiritual readiness across our army to deal with and get after improving command climates and reducing uh, harmful behaviors like suicide, sexual assault, harassment. So spiritual readiness helps us to build this community. Uh, It's the way we treat each other, uh, enhances readiness when it's there, and degrades when it's not. So spiritually
3: calibrated people treat each other with dignity and respect. Chaplain, on the topic of treating people with respect, you decided to bring a guest on the show today, Daryl Davis. You also brought him in to advise you and the chaplains. Now, Daryl has spent his entire life treating people with respect and trying to teach other people to treat other people with respect. How did you first hear about Daryl, and and what made you bring him in as an advisor?
4: When I was a young chaplain, I would never have dreamed of... It, it, we didn't even have email, but I would never have dreamed of reaching out to the chief of chaplains. Well, this young generation's not inhibited, which I'm really thankful for. So a young chaplain said, reached out to me and, uh, on actually on LinkedIn and said, you need to meet and you need to hear Darrell Davis's story. I had Darrell to our home. We had him over for a meal. All good things start when you can good share good food and fellowship together. And that's how the relationship began. And I realized that Daryl was a gift to us um, and we've employed him to in our training and education of our chaplain teams, as well as he has traveled for the army and helping us to have those meaningful conversations. You know, we're so happy that you decided to bring him on chaplain because Daryl here is what I call a superhero.
3: Yeah, oh my God, yeah. Daryl, it is an honor and a privilege to be on the show with you today. You know, I read your bio the other day, and I instantly had a million questions. I know we don't have time for that today, but I'd like to ask them all. It is so intriguing, the work that you do. And I'll tell you what, it's good to know that we have people like you out there doing the lifelong work that you're doing. Now, you mentioned a few minutes ago that your, your father was a member of the United States Army. How did that influence the person you are today?
1: My dad was a curiosity seeker. He always went to learn about new cultures and travel. My dad spoke nine languages fluently, and he could read and write in four of them. He taught Japanese to our soldiers. My father was also one of the first uh, black Secret Service agents in this country. He wanted to be an FBI agent, but J. Edgar Hoover was not hiring any blacks or any women. So my dad went to the Secret Service and Harry Anslinger, who was the head of the Secret Service at the time, hired five black men on the same day. And my dad was one of those five. He rose as high as he could rise in the Secret Service, you know, for a black man, there was a ceiling. And um, when uh, Richard Nixon was vice president to Dwight Eisenhower, uh, he was gonna go to Moscow to have the famous kitchen debate with uh, Russia Prime Minister Nikita Khrushchev. So the State Department put out some kind of ad looking for Americans who were fluent in Russian to apply for job as a translator, interpreter. Well, guess what? My dad spoke Russian. And he went and applied for the job at the State Department and he got the gig. And so he accompanied Richard Nixon to Moscow and acted as his interpreter on that trip. When uh, Nixon returned back to the States, he told Eisenhower about my dad. And uh, they checked him out and they called him into the White House. And both Eisenhower and uh, Nixon told my dad that he had gone as far as he could go in the U.S. Secret Service. And uh, that they suggested that he can go further in the U.S. Foreign Service and suggested that he take the Foreign Service exam. My dad took the Foreign Service exam and passed it and became a Foreign Service officer. And that's what led to my family traveling.
2: Wow. Wow. Now, Darrell, your dad was a true Renaissance man. So how did these travels affect you? And I know they contrasted with some of the racism that you experienced here in the, in the United States.
1: I was a child of parents in the US Foreign Service. so. Every two years, we were in a
2: different country,
1: and in between, we'd be back home here in the States. I started traveling around the world at the age of three in 1961. Wow. And my first exposure to school uh, was overseas. I did kindergarten, first grade, third grade, fifth grade, seventh grade, and in between, of course, I was back home. Well, my classmates overseas were from all all around the world. Anybody who had an embassy where we were assigned, their kids all went to the same school. Yeah, I was around people from all over the world, people who did not look like me, did not speak my language, did not worship as I did, but yet we all got along. Yeah, And so I had issues, you know, when I would come back, when I would see that, you know, we were we were separated or segregated. At the age of 10, I had come back home one time, 1968, and I was in a town called Belmont, Massachusetts, and I was the only uh, black boy in my school in fourth grade. There was a little black girl in second grade, but that was it. Uh, Several of my male friends invited me to join the Cub Scouts. And we had a parade from next door at Lexington, Massachusetts, to Concord to commemorate the ride of Paul Revere. And I was the only black participant in this parade. Everything was fine until we reached a certain point in the parade route when suddenly I was being pelted with uh, bottles and soda pop cans and just small debris from the street by just a few spectators out of the many that were there And I looked over to my right and I saw a group of white people, well, everybody there was white, but this particular group of white people consisted of a couple kids, maybe a year or two older than me, who I did not know, and perhaps their parents, because there were two adults who were throwing things. And my first inclination, because I was so naive, was, oh, you know, these people over here on the sidewalk, they must not like the scouts. I didn't realize that I was the only scout getting hit until my scout leaders came running over and covered me with their bodies. And now I'm the only one getting this special protection. So I'm questioning, well, why are they doing this? I didn't do anything to them, what's what's going on? And all they would do is shush me and rush me along and tell me to keep moving, everything's gonna be okay. They never answered my question. When I returned home, my mom and dad were putting Band-Aids on me and getting me all cleaned up and asking me how did I fall down and get all scraped up. I told them I didn't fall. I told them precisely what had happened. And that was my first introduction to racism. My parents sat me down and explained why this happened to me. And I was incredulous because my 10-year-old brain could not process the idea that someone would want to hurt me for no other reason than the color of my skin. Somebody who never spoke to me, never saw me before, knew nothing about me. Yeah. And so really, and to reinforce my belief, my perception, was the fact that all my friends at that particular time were white because I was one of two black kids in the entire school. And everybody in the in the uh, scouts were white. I was only black scout in the area and they all treated me fine. My white friends overseas, whether they were my little American friends from the embassy or my French or Danish or German or Swedish or, or Australian friends. You know, they didn't behave like that. So my parents had to be wrong. And I did not believe my parents for the first time in my life. But I quickly learned, you know, this is 1968, right? Yes. You know, a pivotal point in our civil rights history. I quickly learned that this phenomenon my parents were telling me about called racism did in fact exist. So I formed a question in my mind at that age of 10 which was how can you hate me when you don't even know me? Yeah. And for the next 54 years I've been looking for the answer to that question.
2: That's good. Let's fast forward a little bit. You know, you you grew up and then you decided to go to Howard University which is right downtown DC and you majored in music. Yes, I did. So Describe this thing about becoming a rock and roll race reciliator. Uh, (laughs) Well, originally, you know, uh, as a child,
1: I I had two vocations I wanted to become. Okay. But each one was pulling at me with equal force in opposite directions. So I was immobilized. I couldn't go either way. On one hand, I wanted to be a computer programmer. And as you know, back then, computers took up this whole space even more. Right, right. And uh, I knew there was money to be had. I knew they would get small. I never dreamed they'd get as small as, you know, your cell phone. I wanted to be a computer programmer. On the other side of me, I wanted to be a spy. My hero was James Bond. Okay. And I wanted each one equally. And I kept trying to figure out how can I do them both? Well, back then you couldn't do them both. Today you can, it's called cyber espionage. But the word cyber didn't even exist back then when I was a kid. Yeah. So I thought about people that I admired a great deal. And almost instantly, two names came to mind. One was Chuck Berry, and the other was Elvis Presley. And what I admired about these two gentlemen was the fact that each of them had made millions upon millions of people all over the world happy with their music. People that they would never meet, they would never see, but... Those people will be touched by their records, hear them on the radio, see them on TV, maybe see them in concert. So I said, you know, that's pretty cool. That's what I want to do. And, uh, you know, I went and saw Chuck Berry. I went and saw Elvis Presley. And that, you know, reaffirmed my commitment to becoming a musician, even though I couldn't play at the time.
3: (laughs) And we'll find out more about the major commitments you made in life, specifically how you spent the last 40 years making friends with members of the KKK. But before we get to that, we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back.
5: Did you know, as a member of AUSA, you have access to many benefits, from car rental to entertainment discounts, the opportunities are ample. Visit AUSA.org slash benefits to learn more.
3: We're back with musician and activist Daryl Davis and Major General Thomas Soljum. Now, Daryl, I read about a conversation that you had with a Ku Klux Klan member. And he said that black people are genetically wired to be violent. What was your response to that?
1: <laughs>
3: when he first made that
1: statement, uh, he said that uh, all black people are born with a gene that causes them to be violent. Mm-hmm. He said that it, you know, it was evidenced by, by looking at, look at all the carjackings and uh, drive-bys that were going on in southeast Washington, D.C., and Southeast Washington, D.C. does have a lot of crime. A lot of those things do go on. And demographically, it is uh, mostly black. And I said, you know, that's completely wrong. I said, you know, you're not even considering the demographics. Yeah. I said, who's doing all the crime up in Bangor, Maine? White people, because that's what lives there. Yeah. And he said, no, 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 you, you all have this gene. That's you know, what's causing it. And I said, look, I have never done a carjacking. I have never done a drive-by. And I'm as black as anybody you've ever seen. How do you explain that? And he he didn't even hesitate to think about it. He answered me like that. He said, your gene is latent. It hasn't come out yet. I was speechless. I'd never heard an answer like that before. So I'm just driving along like a a deer with his eyes in the headlights, right? And he's sitting over here in my passenger seat all smug, like, "Uh uh-huh, you got nothing to say. So I thought about it, and I realized I had to go to his level. There was no amount of uh, of data or scientific
3: evidence. Or rationalization that you were going to be able to, yeah, communicate to him. Yeah, yeah, you know,
1: so I had to go to his level and make an analogy. And I said, well, you know, all white people are born with a gene that makes them a serial killer. And he said, well, how do you figure? I said, well, name me three black serial killers. He couldn't even name me one. I named one for him. I said, just give me two. He couldn't do it. So I rattled off. Uh, Charles Manson, Mm -hmm. Jeffrey Dahmer, Henry Lee Lucas, John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, David Berkowitz, Son of Sam, Albert DeSalvo, the Boston Strangler. These are all white people. I said, son, you are a a serial killer. He said, Daryl, I've never killed anybody. I said, well, your genius layton hasn't come out yet. (laughs) He goes, well, that's stupid. Wow. I said, well, duh, it is stupid. But it's no more stupid of me to say that about you than what you said about me. And he got very, very quiet. But you could see his wheels were spinning. And moments later, he changed the subject. But within five months, based upon that conversation, he left the Klan. And let me tell you one other story real quick, if if I may. A very similar thing happened when um, another Klansman and I, and he was an officer in the Klan. In fact, he was a chaplain in the Klan.
2: They had chaplains in the Klan? Yes,
1: they do. They're called Kluds, K-L-U-D-D the grand Club, all right? And um, we were talking about setting fire on the cross. And he was explaining to me the difference between a cross burning and a cross lighting. Cross burning is when they stick one in your yard as a threat. A cross lighting is when they have a ceremony, like at a rally and they set the cross on fire. as a cross lighting. I said, look, I know the difference between a cross burning and a cross lighting. I'm wondering why, if you are a Christian, that you um, set fire to the cross. Isn't that blasphemous? You know, sacrilegious? Goes, no, 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 no. Uh, we use fire as a purifier and for two reasons. One, we use it as a purifier. It's like when, you're, when you when you got a splinter in your finger and your mom takes a needle and sticks it in the flame to purify it and then digs the needle out of your finger. So I said, okay. And he says, the second reason is because we are lighting the way for Jesus Christ. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, you must have a different Jesus Christ than I have. He says, no, Daryl, there's only one Jesus Christ. I said, no, there are two. And he says, what, is your Jesus Christ black or something? I said, no, he's not black. I said, he's not white either. I said, I've been to Damascus, Syria. I've been to that area where he allegedly appeared. I said, he appeared as one of them. People over there are olive-complected. So if anything, he must be olive-complected. He said, what's your point? I said, my point is you have a different Jesus Christ than I have. And he, he says, well, how do you figure? I said, you said that you were lighting that big cross to light the way for Jesus Christ. He goes, well, if you were a Christian, you would know that Jesus Christ is coming back. I said, I am a Christian, and I do know that. But here's the difference. You have to light the way for your Jesus Christ. My Jesus Christ lights the way for me. And that caused him to be very quiet. And based upon that conversation, he realized that he had been brainwashed.
3: Yeah, that's good. And Daryl, I can tell just having a conversation with you now, you have a calming effect and a rationalization of way of communicating. But that, there had to be an incident when you, you were briefing or talking with the Ku Klux Klan that didn't turn out as rational or as calm as you just gave. Can you give a situation? Sure.
1: I've been attacked. I've had to engage in violence myself just to protect myself You know, from people putting their hands on me or trying to do me harm. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, I prevailed both uh, physically and legally when I took them to court and sued them. But later, both of the individuals uh, apologized to me, you know, not that same day by any means, but later on, they, you know, they came to their senses and apologized, but there were, you know, there will always be people on, on any side, black, white, or whatever who will go to their grave being hateful, violent, and racist. You know, they just won't catch on, but uh, I don't give up on those people. Yeah. I never give up on anybody. I simply move them down my priority list and, you know, and deal with the ones who are willing to sit down and have a conversation. Even though we don't agree, at least I can plant a seed and I come back and nourish that seed. And sometimes even those who, who you know, attack you and don't even, you know, want anything to do with you, sometimes they come back around too. Other times they go to their grave feeling the same way.
2: This has me all fired up. Darrell, you mentioned earlier about your father and he was in the Army. Is that why you decided to work with Chapman Soldier? What else is there that made you want to work with us?
1: I think you know this is so important, and I'm so you know glad and honored to be here with our uh, Chaplain Soldier because there was a time when the army was very racist and very segregated. Let's go back to the '60s when uh, Muhammad Ali was being drafted. He did not want to go to Vietnam, and his remark was, "You know, why should I go?" and kill all these Viet Cong, no Viet Cong ever called me the N-word. And then I come back home to my own country and I'm treated like a second-class citizen. You know, he was so right. It wasn't that he was afraid to go, but he was concerned about the treatment that he and people who looked like him were getting by our military in the 1960s. And now we see this changing. We see this conversation that we're having right now was not something that we saw in the past. So, you know, this this is a shift. This is a sea change where, you know, we have diversity in the Army and people are coming together and wanting to openly discuss these issues where nobody wanted to talk about the elephant in the room beforehand. Chief chap and General Solzhen talking about his past and opening up and revealing. He's a human being. We all are human beings. And this is what people in this country need to hear. And today we have civilians and military coming together and talking about these situations. This is what makes us the great nation that we are. And this is what will foster support between civilians and military, where we are one-on-one having these conversations with each other openly.
3: If you have a deeper understanding of someone's past, how they grew up, what they were taught as a child, right? It gives you a greater appreciation from where they came from and gives you an understanding of the way they think, they act, who they hang out with. And without having that communication, uh, we form stereotypes, right? And biases and and all the negative things that cause are really stem to, and I hate to say it, but ignorance, right? Just because yeah. you don't know about somebody doesn't mean it's bad or it's wrong. And just because somebody acts away, way, maybe that's the way they were raised. And that communication barrier can get us all on the same playing field in the army where we want a common goal of an organization that lives, breathes, fights, and protects each other each day. And I, I'll tell you, I'm proud of it. Can you give us a point after you decided to work with the Army where you feel you made an impact on a member of the Army?
1: Yes, there have been a couple of instances where I've uh, lectured at one of the bases. And of course, you know, we do a Q&A and then I'm there packing up and somebody will approach me when nobody else is around mm-hmm. and share their personal story with me and how they were raised that way. And now they're in the Army, they're seeing a lot of things differently, and they can relate to what I'm saying, whereby before, where they came from, they could never relate to that. That's good feedback for me, and that's the kind of feedback that keeps me going and keeps me wanting to work with the Army. But let me say this. You know, we, we spend way too much time in our country talking about the other person, talking at the other person, talking past the other person, but we don't spend any time talking with the other person. And this is what we need. That's very good. I say, and there are people who who would disagree with me, but I would say, forget about the destruction, forget about the hate. That's another byproduct. We're wasting our times dealing with hate and destruction. Same thing with fear, another symptom. We need to address the nucleus. The nucleus is ignorance. If we cure the ignorance, there's nothing to fear, because we fear that of which we're ignorant. With nothing to fear, there's nothing to hate. With nothing to hate there's nothing to get mad about and destroy so the good thing is we can cure the ignorance that cure is called education and exposure and that is what the u.s army provides and that is why i'm so proud to be working with this great institution
3: i got to share with Darrow one of my top ten you described that again so eloquently your calming rationalist approach is why you are so good at what you do but one of my top tens was be more informed and less emotional. And it works in all aspects of life. And if we just take the time to be more informed, we will, most likely all of us will be less emotional. I gotta go over to Les now.
2: So Darrell, we've talked a lot about those things uh, that you've done with the Army. What are some things that you like the Army change or, or incorporate to have those conversations that you think are so important? What, what should we do? I think we should invite people to step
1: out of their shell Come out of their closets if they've been hiding anything and just be open and even bring in some people to speak like myself, some, some former people uh, who, who perhaps engaged in supremacy or extremism or racism or things like that to, to share what got them into it, how they got out. These people are made up from our communities. You know, this is where the army draws from. Are there racists in our community? Absolutely. Are there violent people? Yes. Are there black people? Yes. Are there white people? Yes. This is our community. Our community is a reflection of the people that are drafted or chosen to be in the army or in our military. So they have all these aspects. And I think, you know, rather than have that elephant sitting in the room, invite some of them to testify, to give their testimony. You're talking about breaking down the walls, as you talked about before. Right. You know... A missed opportunity for conversation is
3: a missed opportunity for reconciliation. That is powerful. Les, you know, we don't have a whole lot of time. And I remember I started, uh, well, I had a million questions for Daryl, but I'd like to go back, if it's okay with you, Les, and really highlight his incredible music career. Daryl, I got to tell you, Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, B.B. King, Muddy Waters, the people that you got to spend in the room together. I mean, just, just, let alone just... You know, just spend time together. But you played music with these people. What attracted you to their musical style and the boogie woogie style that you were so good at?
1: Well, Elvis and Chuck Berry. That rock and roll was born out of that boogie woogie, and also the fact that we all know about the segregated water fountains and bathrooms and yeah. waiting yeah. rooms and and not allowing people into this store or that lunch counter or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right back in the day, music halls where they had concerts, were segregated. If they allowed Black people in at all, there were ropes going around the seating sections with signs hanging that said, seating for white patrons only, colored seating only. And you sat in your designated seating section as determined by the color of your skin. So if you, Daniel, and I were to go see Glenn Miller, Tommy Dorsey, Frank Sinatra back in the 40s, you and I could not sit together. If we cross sat, we would go to jail. That was the law. Okay, that same Jim Crow law was still in existence in the 1950s. And people obeyed the law. just like Rosa Parks. It was the law. She she had to give up her seat in the bus. Mm -hmm. She didn't give it up. She got arrested. It was a stupid law, but it was the law. That same law existed in the 1950s in music halls. But two phenomenons happened. One was the creation of rock and roll by black artists such as Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Fats Domino, Bo Mm -hmm. Diddley. And the popularization of it by the great white artists like Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins, Bill Haley in the Comets, Buddy Holly, and many, many others. And the second phenomenon was this. Even though those seating sections were still, you know, enforced, when those people came out on stage playing that new beat, white kids and black kids could not sit still. They bounced up out of their seats. They knocked over those signs. And they're (laughs) dancing and boogieing in the aisles together for the first time in our history. Black kids and white kids dancing together. And understand this. Those black kids and white kids did not know each other. They were not going to school together. Schools were were segregated. So here they are dancing, black people and white people dancing together. Mm -hmm. And rock and roll caused that. Chuck Berry caused that. Little Richard Elvis. And that's why I'm drawn to rock and roll. We admire the, the great Black and white civil rights leaders like Dr. King and Rosa Parks and many others who worked tirelessly through protests, boycotts, demonstrations, marches, sit-ins to bring white adults and black adults together. These rock and roll people, Elvis, Chuck, Richard, Jerry Lee, were achieving this with black and white youth just through their
2: music. And that's why I'm drawn to that. So let's pull that there just a little bit. So what you're really saying is music is a universal language that brings our races together. Absolutely, absolutely. Dan, I think we probably run out of time.
3: I got one more question for Daryl. Who's your favorite? I, I, I mentioned big names, Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee, I'll do him again, Louis B, B.B. King, Muddy Waters. I know it's hard, but can you share with our listeners who is your favorite musician you've ever played with?
1: Oh, It is hard, it is hard, but uh, definitely Chuck Berry at the top, Pine Top Perkins, Johnny Johnson, uh, Elvis Presley. Pine Top taught me how to play piano. And um, I never played with Elvis. I, play, I met him, but I played with his band after he passed away uh, in, in some
2: tribute shows. Man, all this talk makes me wish I had some sort of musical talent. Yeah, me too. But as we close up here, I think all that we've been talking about today is so important. From spiritual readiness, to the power of conversations, to the power of music, the ability to bring all those together are so important for our army and our nation. You know, when we
1: fly, uh, before the plane takes off, we're getting the instructions about the oxygen mask from the from the flight attendants, and they always tell us, you know, put on your own oxygen mask first before trying to help somebody else, because you know, if you can't breathe, you can't help anybody else. So to, to uh, Chaplain Sojan's point, you know, the army is created to, to protect our country. All right. Well, we cannot protect our country if we can't protect ourselves. So that's why we need that holistic approach to ourselves, get ourselves spiritually ready in order to protect our people. But we must do ourselves
3: first. Les, I'll tell you, this is one of the podcasts where I feel like I'm a better man. When you have professionals like Daryl and Chaplain Slojem, who are very well versed at having these conversations, it just makes it so better. So I hope you both continue to be advocates for your callings.
5: To all our listeners, thanks for joining us. Army Matters is brought to you by the Association of the United States Army, the U.S. Army's Professional Association, member-supported, Army-connected. Visit us at AUSA.org for more information or to become a member. Your membership helps AUSA continue to carry out its mission, educate, inform, and connect with the Total Army, our industry partners, and supporters of a strong national defense. Today's episode was hosted by Lieutenant General Retired Les Smith and SMA Retired Dan Daly, and anchor hosted by Carrie Barrow-Hackies. Anthony Dale Call is the producer and writer, and Andy Bosnag is the supervising sound editor. Nzinga Curry is the executive producer, and the senior producers are Carrie Byro-Hackies and LaSharon Duncan. Special thanks to Lauren Hall and Terry Perriman for their help. Be sure to subscribe to Army Matters wherever you get your podcasts, and please leave a review. As you know, we love seeing stars in the Army, especially if it comes in the form of a five-star review. AUSA's Army Matters podcast, primary purpose is to entertain. The podcast does not constitute advice or services. While guests are invited to listen, listeners, please note that you're not being provided professional advice from the podcast or the guest. The views and opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of AUSA. For questions or to provide topic recommendations, email us at podcast at I'm with Sharon Duncan. Hope you have a great Army Day. Hua.